Get upstairs, quick. Quick. Now look, I want you to go in the attic. Welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched The Talk of the Town, starring Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, and Ronald Coleman in a screwball comedy about the philosophy of law and order and bosses being bad and trying to frame murders on their employees to collect insurance money. Yeah. I mean, that is what it's about, and it is still kind of a screwball comedy. (laughs) Right, but it's like it remembers it's supposed to be a screwball comedy for like five minutes every 20 or 30 minutes. It's like, oh shit, right, yes, uh, uh, have too many people in a room. Anyway, back to the nature of justice. I mean, yeah. I ended up watching this with Nikki, just because scheduling-wise, we were like, eh, there's nothing we really want to watch tonight. I need to watch this this weekend. Let's do it. And about halfway through, Nikki just declared that this movie's genre was Dilg. (laughs) Dilg is just the genre of this film. And not just the name of one of the characters. Because that's the only vibe you can actually consistently hang on to in this film, is people saying Dilg. Everything else, every new scene, you just sort of like must awaken anew to this film and go, oh, I guess this is what the movie is now. But your one North Star, the one thing you can always count on is in that scene, someone will say Dilg and you'll go, boy, we're still having him be named Dilg, huh? We didn't change our minds at any point (laughs) during the production process. I mean, his name is Leopold Dilg, and maybe the smartest thing that they did is make him have to be undercover and referred to as Joseph for most of the movie. Yeah. I gotta say, though, it may be just that I've been in quarantine for so long at this point. I mean, not quarantine. I've been sheltering in place. Or that this year has been a lot of either propaganda movies or heavy message films. I kind of loved this movie. I wouldn't go that far, but I liked it. I mean, here's the wild thing is I didn't particularly enjoy this movie because I kind of kept waiting for it to lock into a vibe. Given the wild tonal swings, someone in the cast is wasted every single scene. But I still think this may be my front runner for 1942 right now. And the worst part is, like, it's not a good movie, but it was so enjoyable for me. It had a lot of homoerotic overtones that I kind of liked. Yeah. And a whole menage a trois setup that wasn't entirely dismissed by the end of the movie, if we're being honest. Oh, for sure. Nikki also was like, I want to do a full makeup, black and white 1942 sketch that's just Gene Arthur in this movie going, listen here, boys, you ever hear of a polycule? (laughs) By the end, Cary Grant and Ronald Coleman, they have the best chemistry in the movie, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. So hot. Gene Arthur (laughs) is a super hot lady, is really trying her best with both of them, but both of them are just so busy being into each other. Oh, they only have eyes for each other. (laughs) 
that you really do get the sense by the end of it that Gene Arthur is the medium by which they can both express their love for each other. And you're like, she seems kind of into it. So I don't know what the problem is. Yeah, I don't either. So I guess we should explain the plot of this film because it's a lot. (laughs) Within a minute and a half at the start of this film, you're introduced to Leopold Dilg, a worker at a mill. The mill burns down. Someone at the mill has died in the fire. Dilg has been put on trial and is almost certainly going to be found guilty and put to death. Then he escapes, and then he runs to a house that Gene Arthur is in. And you're like, okay, two and a half minutes into this film, I guess we've established the tone. We have not. Nope. (laughs) Not even close. Because she and him have a brief scene that's actually kind of weirdly harrowing, as he's twisted his ankle and is covered in rain and is an escaped convict. I guess he's not convicted yet. They know each other somehow. Mm -hmm. They just went to school together, I guess. And he kind of had a crush on her or something. But But that's never really explained because then after this like harrowing breaking and entering, you've got to help me, Nora Shelley, you're my only hope segment. (laughs) Ronald Coleman shows up and the movie tries to be a screwball slamming door farce for 10 minutes. Yes. And Ronald Coleman shows up because he is renting this house from Gene Arthur's character. He is going to be writing a book because he is a law professor slash philosopher. But he shows up a day early for reasons, which are basically how do we go about hiding the escaped convict and not having the law professor see that he's there? Those are the reasons he shows up early. To me, this is the least successful section of the film. Once you get to the next morning, it really picks up steam. But this whole section of him yelling at her and her having to come up with some new screwball reason to explain the fact that Cary Grant cannot be asked to hide from the law even the littlest, tiniest fucking bit. Right. It's the part where the fact that this movie doesn't have a consistent tone bothers me the most. By the time they're going into town and having philosophy of law discussions, I'm kind of into it. But this whole section where Cary Grant starts snoring really loud and Gene Arthur's got to be like, oh, yeah, I know. Terrible. My nasal cavities. Ah, you you hate him. It's just like, okay, can somebody leave poor Gene Arthur alone? (laughs) Because both Michael Lightcap, Ronald Coleman's character, is just like really haranguing her and being a real asshole about how this house he's not supposed to show up to for 24 hours isn't ready yet. How dare she be there when he shows up 24 hours early? One, how is he expected to get in if she weren't there? Mm -hmm. You just showed up a day early. And meanwhile, Cary Grant is like, you've got to help me. You've got to help me. I've escaped from the law. Do I look guilty? And she's like, oh, I guess not. And he's like, that's great. Anyway, I'm going to need breakfast at nine. I snore pretty loud. Can I have some sheets up here? And it's like, dude, give a mouse a cookie. (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) Look, I'm giving you a place to literally hide from the police and you have broken out of jail. Can I have like a minute to just get my shit together and also make sure that the actual law professor does not discover that you are here, escaped convict friend? Just like a minute. Yeah. 
We're really laughing at it, but it weirdly doesn't play as funny. I did not particularly laugh at this section because I just had so much like secondhand anxiety for Gene Arthur. This is the point where I sent you a text and I was like, this has a very strange tone for something that is described as a screwball comedy where there's a guy who's being framed for murder who was a political workers' rights activist. Also, there's just this asshole smart guy who is harassing a woman. This whole section is maybe 10 minutes and it felt interminable, but it does end. It is not, in fact, interminable. (laughs) No. And then in the morning we have our, like, I I think most successful screwball comedy sequence, which is when everyone in town shows up to see Michael Lightcap because it's a small town. And this law professor being here is the most interesting thing that seems to have happened to anyone. So, like, people show up with furniture. Gene Arthur's mom shows up, even though she's used her mom is an excuse for why she had to stay over the night. Every single time they're like, okay, get out. Three more people walk through the door and establish some new part of the plot. And it's like, oh, this is actually a fun way to get through the reams and reams of exposition and setup we have to do for this movie because it's weirdly complicated. (laughs) And one of the people who shows up is a random dude who's like, so... Uh, it's nice that you're here. Tell me, Dean Lightcap, what party do you belong to? Oh, neither party. I just vote for the man. That's great. So, uh, the president wants to nominate you to be a Supreme Court justice. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this took a hard left turn. Yeah. And it will not be the first hard left turn this movie takes. They won't even be the first of three. The thing that is wild is that everyone in the movie knows how crazy that is. That, like, Gene Arthur and Cary Grant overhear it and are suddenly like, we gotta think this through a little bit more. This guy's gonna be on the Supreme Court. They're not even, like, giving him a state Supreme Court seat or putting him on the fast track to it. It's just, like, an associate justice spot opened up on the Supreme Court. And we've decided you get it in the fall. Don't worry about it. Just stay out of the papers. Right. And that's the only thing that he needs to do is don't, you know, get involved in anything that will be in the media. (laughs) Meanwhile. (laughs) Meanwhile, Dilg slash I'm just going to call him Cary Grant because it's such a fucking stupid name. Or Joseph. Cary Grant overhears Ronald Coleman continuing to write his law book, despite the fact that he's going to get a Supreme Court seat, just because he's such a hard worker, and cannot help himself but come out and debate the nature of justice with him. And Gene Arthur's got to be like, ah, fuck, his name's Jonathan, he's the gardener? Joseph. Joseph, who cares, (laughs) I guess? But the two of them have this debate between the heady idea of the law versus the practical realities of how the legal system works in the world. Both of them just speak in generalities, which is very strange, but they become sort of fast friends from this lively debate about whether the law is a thing that is practiced or a thing that is ideal, which is like a debate that no one has, but okay. And they play chess together. Right. They have a lot of little dates in the house. Ronald Coleman lets Cary Grant wear his fuzzy slippers because his ankle is hurt. They have a really, really sweet courtship. 
I agree. This movie makes the most sense genre-wise as a romantic comedy between Cary Grant and Ronald Coleman. Because this is also the period where Cary Grant's kind of being manipulative and kind of organizing things in a certain way to make them romance fall for each other. Because he also like has him go to a baseball game that he knows that a shitty local judge will be at. In fact, the shitty local judge running his case. And has him see the town journalists frothing the town up into a riotous frenzy. And makes him see the practical reality of the law as kind of corrupt and shitty. While the two of them are falling in chess love for each other. Jean Arthur absolutely participates in this. I mean, it's her idea to go to the baseball game, isn't it? No, it's definitely his idea to go to the baseball game. But she's the one that takes him to everything. Because she can. Right. She's the wingman. Yes. Yeah. But that's sort of a lot of act two, is the two of them romance falling for each other. And by that, I, of course, mean falling for Jean Arthur because they're both extremely straight. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. They both fall for Jean Arthur. And as a result, both start to see each other's point of view about the nature of justice and the legal system. And then we have the romantic comedy turn where Ronald Coleman finds out the truth about Cary Grant. And that he's really been pulling the wool over his eyes the entire time because he's not that charming gardener who's good at chess he's fallen in like with. He is, in fact, the escaped convict Leopold Dilg. And he's going to call the cops and Cary Grant hits him over the head and has to, like, run away because the cops showed up anyway. Right. Then Gene Arthur yells at Ronald Coleman and he pulls a reverse Riker and shaves off all of his beard to let you know that he's changed his ideals of justice. No, he does that because he's got to go flirt with the girlfriend slash wife, not really sure, of the guy who supposedly died in the fire. I think it's both, because there's also that whole section when they're going into town and getting the soup. The borscht. The borscht. With an egg mixed into it, which only Leopold Dilg, of all people in the entire world, has ever liked. Yes, but... During that, there's this whole section where Ronald Coleman explains to Gene Arthur the reason he has grown this kind of stupid-looking beard is that he was a prodigy of the law and became a professor at, like, 22 and wanted to make himself look older and more mature and, like, wanted to live up to the law. So there is this metaphorical level to him shaving off his beard, but yes, on a practical level, he's also trying to flirt with the... Floozy. I mean, let's be honest. The floozy of the guy that died in the mill fire, who, as it turns out, he's not dead. She's plot-wise, that's why I'm calling her a floozy, Right, is that her actual relationship with that guy doesn't matter at all. All that matters is she talks like this and says, okay, smart guy. And that's her entire character. Well, and also she's like, I wish I wasn't in mourning so that I could go out dancing, but I am. I'm, yeah, I'm in mourning. Look at the little black scarf that I tuck in my pocket. Oh, you want to take me out dancing? Okay, I'll go. Yeah. That's her entire character. Yes, and you do that voice way better than me. So if we should ever need it again, (laughs) let's have you do it. Got it. I'm on it. She basically immediately gives away the game that the guy's not actually dead and is hiding in Boston, right? Some say, who cares? Yes, sure. It is Boston. Gene Arthur figures out Cary Grant has circled back around and is hiding in Ronald Coleman's attic again because he only has one idea. (laughs) 
And the three of them sort of meet back up and Cary Grant and Ronald Coleman make out. And by that, I mean, exchange their ideals of justice and come to a common accord about it. And they're going to drop Cary Grant off at the jail while Ronald Coleman goes off and finds that guy and brings him back to prove that Cary Grant didn't do it. Because the guy's not dead. But on the way, they stop at like a police roadblock that's set up to find Cary Grant pick up a cop, which, sure, that wants to get carried to the next roadblock so that the cop can go, well, I mean, we're ostensibly going to catch him, but actually we're going to murder him. Small town justice, am I right? High fives all around. Anyway, I'll see you later after not looking and seeing if anyone's hiding in the backseat of this car that looks like Cary Grant. Right. (laughs) For example. (laughs) So Ronald Coleman is like, you know what? I've changed my mind. I'm not going to take you to jail as a matter of arbitrary rule of law. I'm going to take you with me to Boston because we just got to get there as fast as we can. And Cary Grant's like, no, I've come around to your point of view and I can't lose an argument. So I'm going to argue what was your position. When are we going to make out? And Ronald Coleman goes, right now, right in the kisser and punches him in the face. <laughs> Knocks him out so that they don't argue anymore. And they both go to Boston and find the guy, bring him back, and then have another argument about justice, which lets the guy escape inconveniently just in time for the cops to show up and capture Cary Grant. Then the town is going to hang Cary Grant. But Ronald Coleman goes to the beauty parlor where Harley Quinn and her man are hanging out. (laughs) Um, and finds him and brings him into the courthouse and gives, I'm going to be honest, the most nonsense speech about justice I've ever heard in my entire life. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's like, I used to think the law was just a thing in books, but then it turns out you actually have to enact the laws. And then everyone in town is like, yeah, let's not hang a guy. And you're like, from that? Who didn't kill someone. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that actually silences the mob is that the guy that he supposedly murdered is standing there right next to Ronald Coleman. But Ronald Coleman's speech on behalf of justice is like, it turns out you actually have to like go to court and practice law. And everyone in town is like, yeah, you do. America. (laughs) And... (laughs) Not wrong. (laughs) But that resolves everything, except for the most important thing, which is who's going to make out with who. So we cut forward to a week, month, some period of time later where Ronald Coleman's being sworn in at the Supreme Court. And Gene Arthur shows up and goes, Cary Grant gave me the slip and didn't show up with me for reasons. You know, he's a weirdo. Anyway, am I making out with you or him? (laughs) And Ronald Coleman goes, I don't know, I think my true love is justice. And also Cary Grant. But mostly justice. So if Cary Grant proposes to you, you should make out with him. And then Cary Grant shows up and sees the two of them, Gene Arthur and Ronald Coleman, look at each other and goes, well, I guess they're going to make out. And glumly walks out. And Gene Arthur is like, hey, idiot, you look like fucking Cary Grant. (laughs) Fucking, of course I'm going to make out with you. And he's like, oh, really? And he at some point pretends he stops not getting it and starts pretending to not get it as a bit to make her and him keep having a flirtatious fight. Yeah. And then she kisses him. End of film. So actually, Ronald Coleman kisses her in his office. 
Then Cary Grant kisses her in the hallway. Then she kisses Cary Grant in the hallway again, all within a span of three minutes, maybe? Yeah. Which to me is just like, well, we couldn't have Ronald Coleman and Cary Grant kiss because reasons. But I guess they did it through syllogism. (laughs) Like if A equals B... And B equals C, then A equals C. So if Ronald Coleman kisses Gene Arthur and Gene Arthur kisses Cary Grant, then Ronald <laughs> Coleman kisses Cary Grant. Yes. And like, listen, we're doing this a little bit for fun, but also there is a lot of homoerotic energy to like Ronald Coleman's final speech to Gene Arthur of like, friends, close friends. It's important to always have close friends. Close friends you can always go see and know will be there. I'll never forget the close friendship. Close friends. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Well, and also he keeps going on about, like, a man who plays chess and who has great conversations. And I'm like, yeah, we get it. You're hot for the guy. We're all hot for the guy. We're more hot for you being hot for the guy, frankly. And he's hot for you, too. So can we just, like, do the... Oh, no, we can't do the thing because it's 1942. Right. Damn it. Yeah. There's a bunch of, like, is he gonna get caught subplots in Act 2 that don't really matter until they do. And there's a couple of other screwball comedy sequences that don't really matter until they do. This movie keeps introducing characters that matter for like eight minutes. Right. That's the spine of this thing, is the relationship between the three of them and the weird justice philosophy thing between all three of them. Which, more than anything, is just a conversation for them to have during their dating. (laughs) I mean, really. Yeah. Also, we forgot to mention, because the character doesn't really have a whole lot of plot relevance, but Ronald Coleman's reason for coming to the house early is something to do with his secretary is going off to get married, and his man, oh yeah, like his driver slash whatever, is unavailable for something. And the guy shows up about halfway through the movie after Ronald Coleman has been knocked out by Cary Grant. And he is a sort of like a black valet. Uh, He is black. He's not sort of black. But he's, I feel like for a black servant in a film, he's treated really nicely. (laughs) He's intelligent and makes choices based on the information at hand. He has no ridiculous, like, I don't understand anything about this boss line that feels like every maid or butler or whatever in any movie of this period has. So like their relationship seems to be one of mutual respect with a big class stratification of a servant and the person who pays them to serve them. But there's a really creepy moment. Is it the beard shaving thing? It is absolutely the beard shaving thing. Through that whole thing where you're like, he's treated with a lot of respect and it's very normal and very cool. I was like, except when he cries about the beard. Except when he cries about the beard. Susan, the part where he cries about the beard. I... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the scene where Ronald Coleman shaves off his beard, his servant is there and the servant is like, oh no, not the beard. And you're like, oh, he's weirdly invested in this beard, I guess. And then as he shaves it, you cut to a close-up of the dude's face, and he just begins silently weeping. And it's on his face for 
ages. Yeah. It's like you see the tears begin to build in his eyes and the glitter from the lighting as they like tremble on his lashes and then finally ages later spill out of his eye and then we cut away that shot has to be a full 60 seconds long at least it is so wild that is another relationship that i think plays a little better when you queer it a little bit oh definitely because there is definitely a scene in the car where Ronald Coleman's like trying to get tips on how to seduce a woman so that he can seduce Harley Quinn to get information about the case. And the servant is like, I was married once, but it was the mistake of youth and like women. Am I right? I, now I'm a confirmed bachelor, just like you, wink, wink. Right. And we've had a long and intimate history together, you and I. Yeah. And he sends him a birthday telegram and Ronald Coleman's like, he never forgets my birthday. And you're like, okay, cool. But that scene is still so wild. Yep. Anyway, I was desperately trying to come up with a good way to come out of that segment. That character's still a little weird, but it's definitely not a full-on racist stereotype, which is nice. No, but there's definitely some shit in here of, like, he has been in love with Ronald Coleman his whole life. Right. And the weird love quadrangle that begins to form... It is the problem of romantic comedies generally that there's always a Baxter and you always have to figure out what you're gonna do about how the Baxter's kind of screwed. But in this one, who is the Baxter? You can do the polycule joke with basically any romantic triangle, but I have seen very few movies in my life where more than this one, you're just like, you should just all make out. Why don't you just all make out? It's just the easiest thing is if everybody just makes out with everybody. Yeah. I don't understand why you're complicating this by not just all making out with each other. Yeah, I mean, except for there is kind of this wistful, can never be fulfilled. It doesn't even feel like can never be fulfilled for racial reasons or servant and whatever else reasons, but just literally that Ronald Coleman is like, oh, we're just two gay buddies. I've never thought of you that way. (laughs) And the other one is like, I would give my life for the smallest bit of affection from you. The loss of your beard meant more to me than the disillusion of my first marriage. (laughs) Right, because, like, women, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um... (laughs) It's weird, is what I'm saying. Right, and I feel like now is the time to say, okay, so how do we rate this movie? I like it, but it's kind of a hot mess of a film. Yeah, I don't know how to rate this movie because my enjoyment of it has absolutely nothing to do with its quality. Right. And I think also requires a querying of the film in order to enjoy it. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that I don't know that it's intentional. Yeah, I would agree that I think some people on set probably figured out what was going on. But I don't think that this is supposed to be a queer subversive text. 
Like, I don't think the studio set out to be like, we're going to really get one past the censors on this one. Right. But I think like Stage Door, this movie is a lot more fun when you queer it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you get to look past some of the stuff that kind of sucks about it and go, well, if you have that be a fun queer relationship, then it's not nearly as problematic or weird. Yeah, I mean, I guess this movie is kind of halfway between Stage Door and Cleopatra for me. Like, I enjoyed Cleopatra, but nothing about that movie was good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the costumes and the sets and all that were phenomenal. But as far as, like, making a story come to life, it was a (laughs) bloody mess. But in Stage Door actually had a pretty solid story that took only one hard left turn. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas this one is, I don't know, like a six? Yeah, I mean... that's kind of where I was coming down. More good than bad. This is one of those things where you have three credited screenplay writers. Sometimes you're like, okay, only the last guy really did anything besides dialogue. This is definitely a like, okay, so one guy wrote act one, one guy wrote act two, and one guy wrote act three. (laughs) Kind of a movie. Or one did every other scene (laughs) or every third scene. It is totally all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's... (laughs) Yeah, I almost want to go lower. There's a part of me that's like, if we're really being honest, if we're really doing screen test of time, is this movie more good than bad? But on the other hand, I more liked this movie than disliked this movie, for sure. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way where it's like, if we were doing some theoretical, absolute mathematical truth of this movie, uh, for... But it's somehow more than the sum of its parts to become a pretty good, pretty okay movie from, like, what on paper is just a complete mess. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm just going to go with six just to not have to think about it anymore. Yeah, fair. But yeah, my dial's all over the place on this one. You know what's really funny is apparently they shot two endings to this film. One where she chooses Ronald Coleman and one where she chooses Cary Grant. And literally left it up to audience testing. (laughs) I mean, which is stupid because obviously the audience is going to go make out with Cary Grant. Right, obviously. Ronald Coleman, good looking guy, Supreme Court justice, I get it. It's not like that would be a stupid decision on Gene Arthur's part, but the audience is absolutely going to be like, fucking make out with Cary Grant, what are you talking about? But here's the thing, the end completely feels like they just left it to test screening audiences to make the call, because there is no investment. It's like, yeah, just make her, just make her pick him, whatever. Shoot that ending. Okay, cool, we got that one in the can? Alright, let's do the Ronald Coleman choice. Cool, got that one in the can? Great, done for the day. And Gene Arthur is like, okay, alright, am I picking Cary Grant this time? I don't, who am I kissing? What's happening? (laughs) Like, it feels that way. I mean, yes, absolutely everything in that coda. You absolutely do not need the scene. In fact, I think the movie would be significantly better if you stopped with the scene where they're just all making eyes at each other in the Supreme Court chamber and just go like, I don't know, somebody makes out with somebody else. Make up your own mind. There is literally no way that you do that. And it's not, oh, okay, well, they're all just going to go home together. (laughs) Yeah, for sure the reason they didn't do that is they had to go like, oh, but the straight answers only. Straight answers only. Right, yeah. There is no way to know home with that. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you're right, it would be better. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was gonna say don't watch this movie when I came in here to record. And I think maybe watch this movie. Definitely not, like, sit down, make it your whole weekend, like, oh god, this is one you can't miss. But, I don't know, seems like probably a lot of people have some free time right now. Yeah. (laughs) Sit down, watch this movie. It's kind of crazy. It doesn't all work. A lot of it, in fact, doesn't work. Even the stuff that doesn't work is still pretty entertaining because Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, or Ronald Coleman is basically always on screen. And all three of them are great. We did not say enough what a joy it is to watch them in this film because while in any given scene one of them is probably being wasted, throughout the film all of them have multiple opportunities to do whatever it is that they do best. Yeah. And it's great to get to see that. If even one of them was not pitch perfect casting for this, this movie would be a goddamn train wreck. Like, if just Gene Arthur sucked, this movie would be unwatchable. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Same with Ronald Coleman. He's got to thread that needle between being a completely pompous asshole and being a guy you still kind of root for. I think it's very funny and very accurate that Cary Grant was incredibly worried about Ronald Coleman stealing this movie from him, because he almost does. Oh, yeah. A dude's got to look and act like fucking Cary Grant to put up with fucking Leopold Dilg, you know? Yes. And there is actually a really good joke in it that he delivers that I feel like only Cary Grant could get away with this. Is at one point, Gene Arthur's like, oh, Leopold, Leopold. And he says, stop saying that that way. (laughs) And she says, what do you mean? Stop saying it all tender, Leopold. It's not a name you can say like that. (laughs) I thought you were going to point out the thing where uh, Cary Grant is kind of negging Ronald Coleman because they want to make out and talking about how you're almost growing into that beard. It's almost working for you. And... Ronald Coleman turns and goes like, well, you're now painting yourself. And Nikki, without missing a beat, just went, yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> like, We're talking it's about Cary Grant. Grant. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally what he's known for. So, yeah, I mean, like, if you've got yourself a free night, there's a lot of movies on Earth. There's stuff to watch. But this is not a waste of an evening the way that a lot of shit we've watched has been. No, it's fun. It's like, remember how Test Pilot was that movie that could only work because the three leads in this romantic triangle were all incredible actors, but that was a tragedy. (laughs) Yeah. This is that, except it's funny. For sure. And relatively lighthearted, despite the whole bosses trying to frame their employees for murder when they dare to say stuff about how the mill where they work is maybe not up to, well, I would say up to code, but there wasn't one for mills, I guess. That it was dangerous. The first two minutes of this movie is the fucking fugitive. And then you're like, no, 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 but wait, Cary Grant and Ronald Coleman are like going to make out with each other for an hour. It's a screwball kind of queer romantic comedy. Don't worry. After he catches the one-armed man, they just make eyes at each other for a while. It's fun. Right. It'll be totally okay. So next week, then... What do we have next week? I think next week is Pied Piper, which is by far the worst poster we've had in some time, and also is about World War II, and also has nothing on its Wikipedia page, which is a terrible sign. 
this is the kind of Wikipedia page where you can tell somebody made a stub and then someone else came in to go, it was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. And then that's the last time anyone cared about it. This does not look promising. It doesn't even say it was nominated for Best Picture. God. It does. Oh, okay. In the second paragraph, which is one sentence long, there are two paragraphs and then a cast list. Yeah, it's a bad sign. Yep. And I know that we've got years and years and years and years of this coming up, but I'm already tired of World War II. (laughs) It's not even over at this point in film history, and I'm tired of World War II movies. And there's one that comes out and is nominated for Best Picture pretty much every year for the rest of eternity, so... I mean, I think we're in this weird period where they don't know how to make World War II movies yet, because of course they don't, because we're in World War II. This is this weird period where all they know how to make are tragedies of how we've got to fight World War II now. And that is one of eight types of World War II movie, and I would like to watch one of the other seven, you know? Yeah. They're all recruitment films at this point. Yep. Come help us kill Nazis, because look at this horrible thing, or Japanese people, whatever, because look at this horrible thing that they did to the English, or to the Americans, or the Canadians. I'm tired of it already. I mean, to be fair, come help us kill Nazis is turning out to be a weirdly timely message for Screen Test of Time. That's true. Weirdly, we haven't had that much kill Nazis. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's why I'm tired of World War II movies. Yeah, that like it's way more into either the Pacific campaign or like England's got it really tough with those Nazis are kind of the two genres we've had so far. Yeah. But maybe this will change that. Maybe. I'm not feeling confident about this film. No, definitely not from anything on this Wikipedia page. But I don't know, maybe. We'll see. I don't know. Cool. And until then... Uh, This was a formula for a stable polycule. For that reason alone, maybe you should watch it. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, if you need some inspiration. (laughs) Right. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Hey, give me that letter back. I feel like dancing. You heard me? You give me that back. Oh, but I hate your feeling. You give me that letter back. No, Regina, darling. Don't Regina, darling, me say there's something fishy about you, mister. Help! Help! Throw this guy out! You dirty double-crosser. Get rid of him!